Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all right, all right, we're live. How's everybody doing today? Corella, yeah, we're doing good. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, a little McConaughey for you. Hello, McConaughey, man. All right. Cheers. How are you? Cheers. You McConaughey last night, so you're Happy Friday, guys. Happy Friday. Yeah, I McConaughey last night, so I'm nursing a bit of a of a headache. A little bubble. Happy holidays, everybody. This is fun coming into the last couple conversations we're going to have over 2021 and put this year to bed. Um, so for those of you who tune in on a regular basis, this uh, next week will be our last one for the year. And uh, as usual, I will warn you or alert you to the fact that if you're taking investment advice, you probably find better advice than four dudes on a Friday <laughs> talking about things during some sort of happy hour session. So remember that this is for entertainment and educational purposes only, and this is not investment advice. But with that, We've got a hell of a guest, and we got lots of neat topics to talk about. So, Rod, why don't I throw it over to you? Sure. Uh, you had some sure. neat stuff to talk yeah, about. Yeah, with our, this week with our new format, right? Yeah. We're gonna we're uh, as a reminder, our new format is we're gonna talk about something topical for the first ten minutes, and hopefully, our guest Glenn can pipe in if he wants to. And uh, and once we're done that, we'll get into uh, his background and and his story and what he finds interesting these days. So, yeah, t- this week <clears throat> I was actually a bit obsessed with. Uh, I was playing around with some charts and uh, just for giggles, I decided to, uh, exactly. I decided to look at SPY versus the SOC Gen trend index since inception. And I was, I was shocked by, I guess it, it happened in the last couple of weeks, but they start 
and end at the exact same point when scaled to the same level of risk. So I'm going to share my screen. Okay. I did a, like a, it's. I did a bit of a tweet storm today. So um, what do I do here to share my screen? Share and the best thing is to talk yourself through it live on the show. Well, what else am I? You guys know. <laughs> And this is the uh, the actual CTA index you use there, Rod, rather than the trend indexer. I just I just grabbed the uh, SOC trend index that was in our system. Oh, and okay. I lever, yeah. yeah. So I levered that up to. Um, so by the way, I put it in the chat if anybody wants to click on the tweet. Um, but basically, this is what was shocking to me, right? You start and end at the same spot. Now, again, this is assuming the same. We're running at the same level of risk. I think the SOC Gen trend index runs around 13%. Mm -hmm. uh, when you scale it to SPY vol, you get that. And what, what I we find should, interesting- We should pause a little bit, Rodrigo, just because some people might be going, well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you lever it, but they may not connect the mm -hmm. dots with the fact that this is a future strategy and therefore you can lever a future strategy and the the- margin cost is built in so you know you can you can scale this um you know effectively as as much as you like and um and the results are equally legitimate yeah it's so, incredibly anyways, efficient it's incredibly efficient to lever so uh, there'll be a lot of like scaling to the same volatility discussion throughout the sweet storm so in, indeed adam's right uh, and I, I'm sure we'll get into the details of this with Glenn later on, but scaling exposure to futures is possibly the most efficient way of doing that in any other than any other um, security that you can get your hands on. Yeah, and because you, you that, can borrow at the rate that is the lowest marginal rate that the institutions in the market are able to borrow at, right? So you're taking advantage of the fact that very large institutions are participating in this market and they're driving the borrowing costs down to the thinnest possible margin. So, you know, and every investor then gets to take advantage of that. Exactly. Exactly. So that, that's right. pretty shocking. With, with, with high liquidity across a broad set of differentiated markets. I mean, there's, there's layers and layers of stuff to jump into there, but that, mm -hmm. that's right. You know, let, let's, let's hope let's that the through. audience can, can trust us that this is a scalable uh, process and or process. And um, really, what it's, was it's the, an interesting chart, though, Ralph, when you pull it up and you view it that way. I mean, same start point, same end point. You know, yeah. should it tell us that maybe we shouldn't be so reactive to these, you know, one day sell offs, these small little events that are, you know, they're going to be there over time. Maybe we should focus on the longer term. You know, look at our portfolios over the longer horizon. I need feels, you to be profitable on a rolling five-day process. What do you protect mean? Protect for yesterday sort of a thing, yeah. Well, listen, I'm with you, and we've been with you for years. Absolutely. Like, this, is, this chart here is a depiction of a ski and bike store. that we, we, we There's a paper that we wrote, Skis and Bikes, The Untold Story of Diversification. And it's this concept that you want. I mean, this just seems so obvious, right? You want things that zig when others zag. Because when you put them together, you get a nice straight equity line, right? It was just amazing to see um, if when you got those two equity lines, what if we put them together, right? Can life, uh, um, can we imit can it imitate art? And next uh, slide, what I show is, again, combining them at the same and scaling them to the same level of risk as the S&P 500, you get that ski and bike type example, right? It's a much straighter line than either one or the other. And 
I also include the table that, or I guess the yearly returns, fairly compelling results, right? And the drawdowns think, are much it's, lower. It's probably worth just recognizing that the tracking error is still tough. As beautiful For as sure. that line looks, the tracking yes, no, error this from is... the, the market lows is, is, you know, it's unfortunately the experience that we've all had, I think, in competing with passive markets. It's undeniable that, you know, folks will look at the returns from the bottom of the 08 crisis or the bottom of the COVID crisis and, and, and think that the other strategy or the SOC gen trend index should somehow keep up with, you know, returns from the bottom or the trough of, a, mm -hmm. of an equity market cycle. And the point is that that's, that's not, that's not, and I'll make the leap here. That's not the position of the skis and bikes store owner. The store owner of the skis and bike store would like to normalize the revenue stream of the store across several seasons, as should the investor who is trying to plan <clears throat> for retirement or trying to fund obligations that need more regular funding is that they should be thinking about that through the seasons rather than trying to fall prey to some sort of or i mean what if there's a what if there's no snow one winter or you know terrible yeah. skiing conditions or what if it's it's a rainy cold summer right mm -hmm. and no one wants to go biking so it's the exact same principle right you could go through yeah. long periods of time where um one or the other strategy whether you know just holding stocks or allocating to diversify trend goes through you know many years of not very exciting returns maybe a large drawdown in there as well um, but when you put them together, the likelihood of the portfolio going through a long period of, you know, near zero returns and having intolerable drawdowns goes down very dramatically. Exactly. And, and I think that's that's a key point you make there, uh, Adam, in terms of, you know, sometimes it's, it's very easy to get bogged down in the single line items and you look at you know, a single thing and you judge another line item by the previous line item and go, oh, this one was up. Oh, this one wasn't up as much. Hmm. Not so sure what this strategy was doing then. You know, instead of looking at the combination, looking at the portfolio as a whole. And when you see the statistics here and your, your previous chart uh, in terms of the drawdown and the volatility, you really see where it benefits the portfolio. You know, I, I wonder who sleeps better at night here. Probably the uh, your your ski your, your ski owner your here. Ski and your bike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah I mean, that's what point. this. To Mike's point, right, the irony is that, um, you know, you would think, right, and we've chatted with um, uh, Eric Crittenden, for example, on this topic, and you'd think that the investor in the diversified strategy would sleep better at night and that the advisor with clients in the diversified strategy would think better, would sleep better at night. Um, but you do have the battle, this tracking error potential, right, which, which may cause you to lag emotional benchmarks for several years at a time. And then you've got to continue to defend this idea of diversification because as they said, I think it was Brian Portnoy who said that diversification works, whether you like it or not. And um, so, so you need to be prepared for that as well. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, one of the, the crucial elements there is just the education about it. You know, like I'm, I'm uh, as, as much as you guys are, you know, quantitatively driven, you know, logically minded, all of this, you know, and I like to be informed by the data 
of what does the science and what does the research say? And sometimes it can be hard to look at it and say, oh yeah, of course, with hindsight, I would have done this and I would have stuck to this strategy. You know, it's easy to say that. When you're living through it, it can be a bit more difficult. But if the data points a particular way and the statistics are in your favor, I think that's the sort of strategy I'd pursue. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, that 33% drawdown of the 1.5x SockGen trend index happened at a time where the S&P wasn't losing 33%, mm-hmm. right? So it's that tracking error is not just like, oh, maybe it's losing less than the drawdown. It's probably losing money when equities are going up. And that's really ultimately the painful part. But you put it together. And this this chart just shows the sharp ratio almost, you know, maybe maybe goes up 100 what is that 40 percent maybe 160 percent better sharp ratio lower drawdown um just an overall better experience as long as you're not looking at the picture go back go back to the picture of the two lines or the three lines there we go because i think that that's where you know look at that period from 15 to today absolutely yeah Right, that that's is the, that's the six-year period. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, that is just eating a hot garbage sandwich <laughs> for six years. I mean, he's just stepping up to the table year after year. And in at, at, to your point, Glenn, <clears throat> and and we probably should, you know, I want to I want to let Glenn introduce himself at some point because I think the the gems he's dropping might be underestimated given his experience and, and his background, but hopefully some people know who he is, but well, um, it, it, it just is so hard. And like you said, Glenn, it should be obvious. This should be easy, mm-hmm. but it's not. And in that lies the opportunity to understand that, Hey, trying to achieve these types of risk adjusted returns it's not a free lunch. Like they say, diversification is a free lunch. And I'm like, that lunch, not free. It's absolutely categorically a lunch that you pay for in tracking error and behavioral FOMO. It's not free. When they say diversification is a free lunch, I'm, I'm like, I, no, I don't think so. Okay, let's experience. press pause and let Glenn actually introduce himself before we get yeah, any I agree. Because I, I agree that we yeah, should have done that in the beginning. Sure. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to add to that beforehand, Adam, uh, saying to Mike, was uh, we should also, you know, when we're looking at this chart, acknowledge this, the past decade. What sort of decade that has been for, the, for SPY? You know, it's not your average decade for SPY, you know. So we have to put that into context as well. And I know we'll come back to this later on the show and everything else. But yeah, you know, just good to point. have that reference points as well. Good point. That's a really good point. Glenn, just give us a little bit of uh, background on your um, intellectual history and your professional history so that we can, you know, recognize the authority that you bring to this discussion. <laughs> wow, the pressure's on there now. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I can give the, the short version or the long version, but... Uh, since yes. we have all time in the world. You choose. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so for everybody who doesn't know me, um, I am part of the U.S. business development team for Abbey Capital. Um, I'm based on the West Coast out of L.A. here. Just the rest of my U.S. colleagues are based out of the New York office. And then for people who don't know who Abbey Capital are, or what exactly it is that we do, um, I'm actually just going to reference our, our website here because... You know, there's lots of hidden gems on there as well, and you can't really go wrong. So <clears throat> as the one-liner we have up there, 
Abbey Capital is an Irish alternative investment manager which specializes in managing multi-manager portfolios in managed futures. So people could prepare themselves for that discussion. Managed futures, we've already looked at stock gen, we've looked at the, the CTA trend index, et cetera. Um, we're gonna be talking multi-manager portfolios, how to construct them, how to perform and everything else. And then we're going to be talking about Irish people for the rest of the time. I love that you exactly. guys have like an Irish multi-manager. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So some of you might be wondering, like, <laughs> what the hell is this Irish dude doing over in LA, you know, talking about managed futures and how did he get here? Um, well, you know, the story kind of goes. And actually, when I think about it, I'm like, where did all of this really start off? And what brought me here? And, you know, I guess it's pretty much after secondary school, which I guess is the equivalent of high school over here. You know, you, you finish high school and you're like, wow, you've no idea what you want to do with your life. You're like, oh, I should go to college, but what will I do in college? You know, it's hard to commit at that stage and say, oh, if I go into this, does that mean I'm going to become this after all these years? Um, but I knew I was more, you know, orientated and leaning towards the logic sort of things and maths and problem solving rather than, you know, arts and literature, for example. You know, it always bugged me out when I was writing a, an English essay or something like this that, uh, you know, you'd give it, it's like, oh, Glenn, excellent work, well done. That's 70%. I'm like, oh, okay. It's like, maybe you could tell me what the correct answer was, how I could do better. It's like, hmm, it doesn't really work like that, you know. And then whereas for maths, it's, you know, maths or physics, it's like you hand, you hand back your exam. It's like, yeah, you got it right. You got it correct. You solved the problem. You know, you get 100%. So immediately I was like, okay, I think the science road is the one that I'm going to take. Um, so yeah, after after high school, I decided to do a, uh, a science degree. And I decided to go to the um, the local university, essentially, uh, Minute University. It's about it's roughly, gonna say, 20 miles away from Dublin city centre. And, and the reason I went there was because convenience. Yeah, it's about 10 miles from my, my parents' home, which meant that, you know, for four years, I didn't have to live off pot noodle. You know, I was very happy to come <laughs> home to a warm cooked dinner. Yeah, thanks, Mom. And, um, yeah, I, I went into general science route, and when I... You know, after the first year, I completed the first year, I completed the second year. That's all of a sudden something clicked with me. And I'm not really sure what exactly it was, but, you know, thankfully something did click with me. Um, it was a case of, oh, I actually kind of understand how all this maths works now and physics. And it was just the way that it was taught. You know, in high school, it's very much, if you come across this problem, here's a formula, how to solve it. You know, it's like just learn this bunch of formulas. And if this comes up in the exam, apply that formula. Because in university, it was very different. We were sort of taught about, you know, complex maths in terms of pictures and diagrams. And it's like, oh, you're actually looking at this sphere here. You're looking at this area under a chart. This is a line. You know, and people don't necessarily associate, you know, differentiation with what it looks like in practice. But then once you start to visualize these things, you're like, ah, okay, I kind of get this. I understand this. And that's kind of what happened to me. And the more I understood, the more I liked it and the more I enjoyed it. So I actually, um, for my finals, I specialized in applied mathematics and theoretical physics. You know, I just went down the purely theoretical route. This is what I like doing. 
I like solving problems there, you know. And once I understood it, I could picture it. I was like, I like this. Um, so then, you know, you're at the end of your degree. You're kind of back to square one. I know all this stuff. What do I do next? What's, what's the next step like? So, um, you know, I really enjoyed college and I enjoyed the whole experience. Um, the, the group that I was in, in terms of the department of theoretical physics, it was quite a small small department, you know, small in the community, and we're all kind of friends. We were friends more than students with the, with the lecturers, you know, it was that small. As you can imagine, theoretical physics doesn't always have the, the greatest draw of students. <laughs> so uh, I had the opportunity there to, um, to join one of the research teams, or basically the, um, the programs that was running in the department. And this is it was all based on quantum computing and they were looking at a lot of interesting things on the quantum side of stuff. Um, you know, for me, it was like fascinating to have the opportunity to maybe go in and do some research on this. And I was offered a, a, a PhD position there as a student. And I was like, oh, wow. And I remember um, what happened in the summer was that my supervisor had actually given me this paper. Uh, and if you guys haven't seen it, or, anyone listening hasn't seen it, I urge them to read it, actually. It was a, an article that appeared in Scientific American magazine called Computing with Quantum Knots. And, you know, he, he gave me that, and it was kind of like, there you go. Let me know what you think about that. Yeah, it, that that's kind of how it went. And I, <laughs> I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is absolutely fascinating stuff. You know, it's like, wow. I, you know, the more you, the more you learn about quantum physics and everything else, you're like, this can't be real, is it? Is this how this really works? So I embarked on that, and I eventually, uh, you know, I, I did a PhD in, in theoretical physics kind of based on topological quantum computing. And, uh, you know, if people want to learn more about it, they can look up that article or alternatively read my thesis. But, uh, you know, I'd say I'll spare them the headache and it just gives them the, uh, the one-liner here as to actually what it was all about and why it actually applies to my current role now, which is, I think the two are kind of distinct to each other, but they really aren't. Um, yeah, so topological quantum computing is really all about, you know, how can we make quantum computers, essentially? What do we really need for it? And in topological quantum computing, what you're really doing is just moving around particles and you're braiding them, you're creating some sort of a, and not, and this stores the calculation at a very high level. You know, but they're not any which particles that you're, you're playing around with. These are really special particles called anions, yeah, super special particles. You know, to put that in context, I guess, in this beautiful 3D world that we're all living in, there's only two types of particles. You know, there's bosons and fermions. Fermions, you all know, like an electron is an example of a fermion, a boson. A photon is an example of a boson. Um, but they're, they're interesting, but not super interesting. You know, when you swap the positions of bosons, their wavelengths, um, or their, their wave functions basically pick up a plus one phase factor. When you swap fermions, their wave functions pick up a minus one. So there's not a whole lot you can do with that. You know, it's going to be plus one or minus one. It's like not a really effective way to store you know, a calculation, let's say. So enter into the frame are super special particles, anions. Now, these guys only exist in two dimensions, which you know, sounds a little weird. <laughs> but uh, 
basically they're, they're quasi-particles or excitations of a uh, you know, electron fluid or something like this. Well, the interesting thing about them is when you swap them, they pick up a complex phase. So all of a sudden they're pretty complex particles. It's not the minus or plus one like the other guys, they're a complex phase. So you can then describe their movements by this braid group, which is just a mathematical structure. And the braid group then is the series of knots, which is what's going to contain the calculations for quantum compute. So like it all seems like an you know a crazy world, one might say, but it's super interesting when you're on it. And you know, even now, um, you know, Microsoft have invested massively in quantum computers and topological quantum computing. And we're you know, every year we're seeing more and more results there and interesting results and everything else. Um, have you ever put that that um, theoretical work into practice or connected anything that you've done in financial markets to to some of your academic work? Yes, I do. Yeah, all the time. I, I have it stored in my folder here called Top Secret. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I, got, I mean, there's so many similarities to what we do, and it's 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 why I got into finance, you know. Um, it was a case of when I was finished all of this, and what I enjoyed during my PhD as well was the ability to teach and lecture at the same time. You know, so kind of like when, when I got the ah oh, moment and I was like, oh, I see what's going on with this. I wanted to share that with other people as well and tell them, you know, all this complex stuff, it's really just this. You're just connecting these two lines on this chart here. And that's all that formula is doing. Like, oh, and when people see that, they understand it, you know, and it can relate to that. And the same happens in finance. You know, what we're talking here about, you know, leveraging portfolios, you know, risk adjustment, volatilities. It's all really abstract concepts. But then when you just take a simple example and say, okay, pretend we have these two assets. One is 10 vol, one is 20 vol. You know, one is twice the other, and you can scale one to the other. And it's like, oh, that's all. That's all it is, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. So uh, when I finished PhD, you know, I was like, okay, I know all this stuff. Let's say, what can I, what can I do with it? Um, yeah, the natural sort of next step was try and apply it to finance. Yeah. Tricky. Of course, because what else are you going to do? Make no money everywhere else. <laughs> exactly yeah and i think that's it that's kind of the idea you, you come with as well you know there you are you're like oh i know all this physics stuff how can i apply this to the markets you know and i joined abby in 2014 uh, on the research team there as a research analyst so i was on the investment side and you know i, I come in with the mindset like rod was saying there it's like okay i know this let's crack this let's solve this okay that's right let's do this i'm gonna do this you know no, no finance experience, but I'm going to crack this. You know, and then you realize, oh, that's not exactly how all of this works. Everything else, um, you know, but, but, but super interesting. And, you know, and then it comes to the application of these things. When I joined, you know, the first thing I did when I joined Abby, it's kind of like, oh, my God, what is everybody talking about? You know, I have no idea what people are talking about. It's like a different language. And then you go, you know, in, in physics, volatility is pretty much just related to ideal gases and this sort of stuff. You know? In terms of volatility of an acid or that, it's like standard deviations is generally how you, you talk about it. And I was like, yeah, it took a while to translate things and then I was able to get it. 
we're coming from a world of like these hypothetical little particles, everything in the futures world and futures trading somewhat seemed pretty tangible. You know? Yeah, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, Glenn, do you remember any of the first projects that you worked on at Abbey? Um, yeah. Any, or any projects that you could talk about that stand out? Yeah, the very first project. Well, I joined in 2014. And um, at that stage, we, we just had the one product, which was our private fund. Um, mid-2014, uh, as, I, as I joined, we were just in the process of launching our first mutual fund. And that was my very first project. It was like, right, we're going to launch a mutual fund. Here we go. So I was straight away involved with all the analysis associated with that you know, the portfolio construction side of things, the risk management side of it, you know, and I really got to see every single step of it. You know, I came in late at the, kind of late to the party, let's say this process had started, you know, months, if not over a year before I joined in terms of the analysis, the ongoing investigations and so on. But I got to see, you know, the practice side of it, let's say. Um, so that really was the first uh, major project I worked on. And then I remember another project I worked on was, um, was just in terms of uh, fixed income and looking at fixed income positions and looking at bonds exposures and interest rate exposures. And maybe there's a better way of looking at this if we look at it on a durational basis. You know, instead of just looking at notional exposures, maybe we should look at things in duration terms. Um, and what, what's the differences there, you know, how often we'd have to, to scale these up. And, you know, that's all very dependent on interest rates. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a 10-year bond might, might only have a seven-year duration or something like this, but that changes in different interest rate regimes and how would your positions and exposures look like that. So I kind of built out some bit of code to do that and wrote a paper on it. And, you know, that's kind of what impressed me at Abbey when I, when I joined as well, it was pretty much just like being in college again, you know, the team was like, we all sat around next to each other, you know, the CIO sat next to me, he shared with me everything that he was working on. He what I was working on. It was like, you know, it all felt very natural in many ways. And, you know, the focus has always been on innovation and education, you know, and that is true to this day. You know, the, the launch of the mutual fund was really a, you know, it was a big innovation. There's very few things like it available in the retail space at the time. You know, you just couldn't get these multi-manager solutions. You know, we, we said, oh, now might be a good time to do this. We, you know, it was in hindsight now when I look back at it in terms of the timing of it. You know, you can never foresee or predict the timing of things, but sometimes you can get lucky with it. And it was just one of those things that we got lucky with it. Um, you know, but it did take the guts to go out and do this first. You know, 2011, 12, 13, you know, they were kind of mixed years. So then they decided to launch a new product in 2014. You know, it took a bit of guts to do it. A good year to launch. 14. Yeah, exactly. But these are things that you don't time, but you can get lucky along the way. Yeah, and then if I think of 2015, 2016, 2017, you know, what really shaped those years if I look back and it's, you know, I spent a huge amount of time on the infrastructure. Working on the infrastructure was a big thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of improving our systems, continuously improving our processes, making everything more streamlined, smoother, scalable. Yeah. You know, that's a super important thing when you're in, in, in the multi-manager space. 
And also we, we spent a lot of time and effort in building out sort of the customized part of our business. So the customized part of our business was, you know, essentially creating custom portfolios for large institutional clients. And, you know, that was extremely rewarding and, and interesting for someone like me because all of a sudden you had these, you know, large clients who are like, yes, I like what you do on the private side, probably can't for whatever reasons invest in a, you know, mutual fund product. But, you know, I want something that looks like this for my portfolio. Can you help me build it? And all of a sudden it goes back to, oh, wow, I now have a problem in front of me. Like, how can I solve this problem? You know, and it's like interesting all the time to see you come with, you know, you build something, you have a proposal, it comes back to you. What can you do on this side? Have you thought about this? Yeah, it, it's super interesting on that side. And it's also very rewarding in that you feel that, oh, okay, I'm actually custom building this thing for you. And it's going into your portfolio and solving this very particular problem that you wanted to do. So, you know, that's that's very rewarding. So that kind of shaped, I'd say, those years. The infrastructure, though, I was heavily involved in that. Um, you know, and, and that kind of goes through very different phases as we look at it. There's the purely theoretical side, um, which is something I was involved in um, and research team in general is where, you know, there's the, you look at the theory and what does it say? Um, you write the papers uh, and we typically write a lot of papers. As you can imagine, we have a huge amount of data. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, a data analyst stream in many ways. You know, you have over 20 years of managed account data. Like it's just a huge amount of data there. Unfortunately, it's all super sensitive stuff. So it's not like things I can share with you. But, you know, it does help shape ourselves and our own uh, education and our own knowledge. And it just gets stronger and stronger all the time. So it's, it's really a case of what you can do with it. And in that period, and constantly now, it's kind of a case of, you know, the infrastructure has just grown so much and also become so, you know, precise, I'd say, meticulous in what we do. It's kind of keeping up with the times in many ways. It's like there's an app for everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we, we, have, we build, we, you know, we custom build all these things because what we do is relatively niche. So, you know, you can go out to providers and then it's kind of like, oh, do you, do you have a function for this? They're like, no, but we could possibly add one in. Like, oh, have you thought about this? Do you have a function for this? And it's like, no. It's like, okay, we'll just build our own one then, you know, because we, we know exactly what we want. So then, um, what, what, I just, I'm curious why Abby has gone the route of um, being a manager of managers or, or putting managers together rather than deploying your own, or maybe you have or do also deploy and run your own manage future strategies. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about how, how Abby puts those strategies together. Um, so how do you select managers? How do you put a portfolio of managers together? What are the qualities that you look for in each manager and in a portfolio of those managers to maximize the you know, risk-adjusted objectives of, of the portfolio? And then how do you deploy those multi-manager strategies? Do you own the individual funds and then put the funds together? Do you run them in, in distinct separately managed accounts and then just aggregate the, the performance at each period? Do you commingle all of the, the futures so you get some trade netting? What is what does all that stuff look like? Maybe start but, but start, start with, with Yeah. Start with where you source managers or how you 
identify prospective managers and no and, your first um, question adam which is which is a good lead-in is why did you choose well, to do manager multi-manager yeah, rather right. than running yourself yeah yes the, the why part of it is uh is a key thing really and, and it's also a key thing as people look to invest in managed futures and liquid alts and you know that sort of space trend followers etc um when I think about it, um, you know, the reasons for it are, and you, you guys will know this as well, and have you know experience in this space as well, is you know we want to create solutions and products that people will easily be able to deploy in their portfolios. Yeah. So that's kind of kind of a key thing. We want everything to be, you know, scalable liquid and you know will do exactly as as it's intended to do now in terms of why the multi-manager solution what we thought to go by was you know one of our keys is diversification 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 and you know i don't need to uh to sell this to you guys because you know very well how important diversification is but that's really the heart of everything we do and why we do the multi-manager approach. I mean, there's lots of empirical evidence out there that there's a lot of you know, dispersion between the single managers in the managed future space and very little persistence in their returns year on year. So, you know, if we were to run our own CTA strategy or our own managed futures or trend following strategy, you know, we'd follow similar we follow a similar return profile, let's say. We're going to go through periods of performance, good performance, and then periods of, uh, you know, not so positive performance. And that's just kind of a function of the space and how it actually works. And, and the reason for it is that there's so many different strategies out there, you know, there, and there's so many different environments that suit different strategies. For example, you know, trend following has done you know, if you look at the CTA trend index, it's positive this year, but it hasn't been, always been positive. In other years, it's been positive for shorter term managers. In other term, times, it's been positive for, you know, global macro managers, let's say. So the trading style is an important differentiator. And then another important differentiator is the speed of your system. You know, sometimes you might be a trend follower, but the shorter term or the shorter horizons suit much better depending on the market moves. And sometimes the market moves might suit longer-term trend models. So then the idea is you have this space where all of these managers are you know, highly differentiated. There's high dispersion and there's, high, uh, and there's very little persistence in it. So what you can actually do is use some of the techniques we spoke about there is create a multi-manager portfolio where you embrace this volatility. And what you actually do is you harness the volatility to, uh, to drive your strategy and you profit from that. Because we you know, and, it, and I, I hear at the back of my head, one of my old lectures saying, if you can find eigenvalues and eigenvectors, you'll be totally fine. And the same sort of thing applies here. You know, if you can find <clears throat> orthogonal vectors or orthogonal managers or you know, non-correlated strategies, let's say, and combine them into a portfolio, your portfolio has the, you know, the potential of being very strong, lower drawdowns, you know, lower volatility, and a smoother profile over time. 
So yeah, this, we, we would certainly provide. Yeah, we, we would definitely share the vision of combining as many different um, credible approaches mm -hmm. in a solution as possible, right? I guess the this this a bunch of things sort of fall out of this, right? One interesting um, thing that we've come to understand is that if you combine, for example, um, time series type trend strategies or um, moving average versus price or double moving average, triple moving average type strategies, mm -hmm. all of these, all of the different definitions of trend, if you were to diversify across them, then you get, they end up being a linear combination of each other, right? And so, mm -hmm. in fact, the average of all of the different trend signals ends up being this shape of a trend signal, right? Mm -hmm. And so you could, I mean, you, you could theoretically just take all conceivable definitions of time series type trend all different combinations of breakout type or Donchin type trend or, um, you know, breakout with fall expansion. I mean, there's a, there's a finite, you know, space of potential definitions of trend, right. That you can assemble strategies from. And then I, you know, I, I heard you sort of talk about um, macro strategies, right. So then you, you move out into other types of indicators. Maybe you embed, carry or maybe you embed macroeconomic type of series as as indicators right but if you if you sort of drill down and it's funny because we literally just did this today rodrigo shared the hfri macro systematic index and you know the hope was i think that we were going to see some differentiation between the macro index and the trend index and or, you know the cta index yeah. and in fact they you know, essentially kind of track one another because the macro index is to a very substantial degree um, driven by trend type signals, right? So, you know, it's it's this weird, like thinking about trend and diversification in trend, when you boil it down because all the different trend specifications, if you, if you were to allocate to all of them and you were to, you know, give them all different weights, it boils down to just one certain type of trend specification. Right. And you could just you could easily replicate that in in one strategy and then trade that strategy. And and there are ancillary benefits to that, for example, fee netting, like performance fee netting, which we, we can maybe talk about as well. But I'll let you sort of react to yeah. that idea first. Yes. No, I, that's a very good point. And often, you know, you will see um <clears throat> Like you say, when you take a, bu a bunch of so-called trend followers or, you know, highly correlated managers, you, know, you put them together and you're going to get something, you know, trend-like comes out on the other side. But I think a key thing to this, which might help when uh, I describe maybe the construction of a hypothetical portfolio or something like this, a multi-manager portfolio, and answer all of your, your previous questions as well, Adam, is, you know, managers and return streams and trend followers are very complex things, you know, and they're very complex strategies. And we shouldn't just think of them as one-dimensional return streams either. 
there's a lot more there. And I know correlation is a great tool. It's a great thing. We use correlation a lot. Yeah, we like it. But it's one measure and it's, it's purely one dimensional. There's all these higher moments that we use as well. There's a lot of information in there. So let's say, for example, now we build a hypothetical portfolio. You guys have approached me. You know, you're interested in managed futures for whatever the reason may be, and you want to go down the multi-manager route. And let's say you want to build a 60-40 managed futures portfolio, where 60% is in trend following, 40% is in non-trend. You know, because you've heard and you've done your research and you've said that, okay, in this way, I might get the capital efficiencies of, you know, firstly, the multi-manager solution rather than going the, the single manager route. I'm, I want a smoother profile over time, et cetera. But I also want exposure to all of these different strategies. I don't want to pick one particular manager and be like, oh, in hindsight, I should have probably picked another one. Maybe I should go to an expert in space, whatever the case may be. So the way I look at it and the way that it helps me is, you know, the way I always kind of thought about it was like like baking a cake. And I know you guys have kind of used this analogy before, which is which is good. It makes me think I'm not the only crazy person here. So um, far from it, mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when, when you when you think about baking a cake, you know, it's it's kind of three-step process in many ways. The first one is you have your ingredients and they're well defined and you have specific quantities of each. You then have your you know, your recipe. It's your process, what you have to do, and it's repeatable. And then last step, you have your output. You know, it's baked, it's done. And if you think about that in the portfolio construction, and particularly in multi-manager construction, the first one is, you know, you guys have said you want a 60-40 portfolio, 60% trend following. So given that I know what the output needs to look like, I should know, well, I maybe I should start by getting a trend follower in there. That might be a normal thing to do, you know? One of my ingredients, if I'm making a carrot cake, might be to start with a carrot. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to build a trend following portfolio, I might start with a trend follower. Yeah. And that, that's the, the first step. And it's actually the thing I, I thought about yesterday when I was thinking about this was uh, there's so many analogies that you can use for this. It's like, a, uh, it's like building a jigsaw or putting a jigsaw together. Yeah, what piece is more important in a jigsaw? Yeah, they're all equally important in a jigsaw because if, you, if there's one missing, I mean, it looks completely undone. You know, it's completely unfinished. Well, but some I, pieces. I would, I would yeah. offer that the picture on the front of the box is the most important piece of the jigsaw <laughs> puzzle. <laughs> yeah, your guide. But uh, yeah, they're, they're all equally important to each other. But some pieces are easier to find. You know, the corner pieces are always the easiest to find, and you can typically work your way. And the same with the multi-manager. The first manager you put in or the first few managers are going to be the easiest to find, right? Because you start with your key ingredients and you go, okay, let's start here, okay? So <clears throat> the key thing to this though, uh, Adam, which gets to your question really is, it's not as straightforward when you're constructing a portfolio of managers than baking a cake with ingredients. The salt is not always salt. The sugar is not always sugar. Yeah. Don't take everything for what's written on the tin. So a strategy might be labeled as a trend strategy. Another strategy might be labeled as a, you know, a macro strategy. <clears throat> They're kind of arbitrary labels, really. What you want to do is 
look at each one of these strategies in huge detail and break it down yourself into its key components, let's say. You know, and there's so many techniques out there and you guys have, have covered this in a lot of your papers as well. You know, there's like PCA, there's factor analysis, there's everything, you know, there's loads of different techniques you can do. But essentially, you want to be able to label your ingredients. So for manager A, you want to say that, oh, my analysis tells me it's about 60% trend, 30% some other factor, let's call it, you know, short term or value or something. And then there's an extra, the remainder, we're not too sure what it is, but it kind of looks like macro. Yeah. So you have this and you do that with your entire universe of managers. So then you know where in the space, you think about this as a physics problem or any other problem, you can label your axes as vectors and you can say, okay, we have a trend vector up here. We have a short-term vector there. You can label them whichever way you want. You know, um, you can have a macro vector there and you can say, this person sits here, this person sits there. <laughs> so then you know when it comes to the um, recipe part or the portfolio construction, I want 60% trend, I want 40% non-trend. I then allocate to these managers in a very specific way, such that I will get that resulting um, portfolio. But the key is, it's not just based on the correlations of each of these managers to each other. You know, sure, no, no, I... Different, yeah. Yeah, different dimensions in this. So there's, the correlation is, is one. There's the markets that are traded. It's mm -hmm. hugely important. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, yeah, there can be trend experts that only trade, you know, financial markets. There might be experts in the financial space. There might be experts in the commodity space. Yeah. Yes, their results, if you look at them, there might be both trend followers, but their combination is much more powerful than each one individually because suddenly you have this trend portfolio that <laughs> trades commodities by a specialist and you know, fixed income by a specialist. So there's that horizon. So then you keep going down these different sort of you know, dimensions, let's say. There's the trading style dimension. You want to be diversified across this. Then there's the dimension within each of the managers. You want to be diversified. So you want to be diversified across your trend managers. You want the combination of those moving average type strategies and those you know, more breakout strategies, the momentum strategies. And then you want to be diversified at the, uh, the market level. Um, you know, some people, like I say, more commodity focused or more fixed income focused, et cetera. Then what you can do is you're a big multi-manager. You have the infrastructure. So what you can do is you have so many levers that you can now pull. You know, we can, we, to answer your, your previous question, we, uh, we use a managed account structure. And this is the platform. We have built our own one over, you know, the, the past 20 years. We've kind of perfected this. And, uh, you know, it's hugely valuable because we're allocating to all of these managed accounts. You know, we have full visibility as to what goes on in each managed account, which informs us, you know, better over time. But it also means that we can scale up or down each one of these accounts. So all of a sudden, like we were talking earlier about our SPY and SOCGEN index, we can scale up or down each one of these accounts. And then, you know, let's say, for example, we allocate to each of these accounts a 20% fall. To start off, all of these ingredients are, you know, this lad is 5 vol, this guy is 10 vol, this guy is 24 vol. You know, they're all over the place. 
you want to normalize, let's say we allocate everyone a 12 volt, because of the diversification, let's say that, um, you know, for this example, that our non-trend is 0.3 correlated to our trend, for example, you do that, you get that, um, you know, volatility reduction. We might get a 40% volatility reduction. So all of a sudden our 20% portfolio is now a 12% portfolio. But if you think about it, if after getting 20 managers working for you at 20 vol to produce this portfolio, which is now 12 vol, so you can scale up these accounts then using, we all know, uh, you know, notional allocations and volatility scale and all this good stuff. And you're actually getting even more for your money then because the capital efficiencies that are involved. So you might be getting something like, you know, you think that you're putting in $1 and you're getting $1 out on the other side in terms of your multi-manager. If you break it down, what you're actually getting is maybe 100% into your managed futures part or your trend following part and something like 70% into your non-trend part. So all of a sudden it would have been equivalent to, you know, let's say if you put in, I know you had $100 to spend in, in your budget for your diversifier, you could have bought a you know a trend follower and put in a hundred percent, but then you would have to put in you know seventy percent into a non-trend. But instead of having to do that, you can get all of that simply from the construct part of it. Yeah, I like that. That's that's a valuable that's a valuable yeah. overlay because if you allocate to a sufficiently diversified set of managers, then you are probably now running a portfolio at substantially below the target ball mm -hmm. that you. Um, that you had as a diversifier for the rest of your portfolio, running the managed accounts is nice that you're then able to rescale exactly. all of the managers to different falls in order to target a full portfolio, multi-manager portfolio ball that is consistent with the target risk of, of the client. So that, that is a nice, a nice perk. And yeah, I do want to talk a little bit about- Extremely capital efficient as well, which is, which is the nice part of it, you know, because totally. on, the, on the outside, you might realize this. You know, you're saying, yeah. okay, I have this multi-manager product. Yeah. Okay, so what? Yeah, like you're allocating to 20 managers in this portfolio I built you. It's like, okay, so what? And I'm like, well, if you were to do the same thing, and if you had the same, you know, correlation profiles between them, you know, it would cost you probably $170 to do the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, I always wonder how, and, and Mike, maybe you want to chime in here because you often ask a question like this. this. This often occurs to you, I know, but you've got a bunch of managers in the portfolio. Um, presumably, they run on performance fees because typically CTAs run with performance fees. So if they don't, then that alleviates this problem. If they do, you've got some managers that are up on the year, other managers that are down on the year. In aggregate, though, maybe they're down, but the managers that are up expect to get a performance fee. How do you and Mike chime in if I'm not articulating? Yeah, that. no, no, and and then and then the trades that create the performance fees. So we did talk a little bit about trade netting, and I don't know if we got right into we it. We haven't. Yeah, certainly on the SMA side, you could do the netting. You know, part of the reduction in volatility is, to some degree, if you're not netting and you own the funds of the different accounts, you've got one person or manager that has a long S and P exposure, and another manager has a short S and P exposure, and so. The, the, you're paying roll costs. You're, you're yeah, paying, it's kind of a, you know, buys a false, on one end. And, yeah, right, it's a, it's a false reduction in volatility to some degree that mm -hmm. you would like to avoid as a, as an allocator. So yeah, we packed a lot into that, Glenn, but we laid <laughs> that at your feet for a commentary. Yeah. 
Yes, no, and it's a, it's a good point you bring up, and it's one that you know we're, we're quite often asked about as well. But if I go back to to our example and that fund I just created for you guys, we've suddenly have these twenty managed accounts that live here, completely segregated to each other. Managed account A trades its own trend strategy. It has its resulting positions. You know, managed account B is a let's say he's global macro or whatever it is, trades its own strategy and has its own positions. You know, at this level here, we get the fund positions, which is a combination of all of these positions at this way. I guess and, the point though, Glenn, is that in theory, you could you could just combine all of the target positions for each of the individual managers as one trade blotter. And then you'd have those that are that are buying today offsetting those that are selling today and you'd yes. end up with a net value. So, so I'm just I'm curious what the relative benefits or drawbacks to to doing that versus versus holding each of the managers in segregated accounts might look yes. like. Yes, understood. Yeah. So um, holding each of the managers in a separate account is firstly yeah, an infrastructure thing, and and the reasons why it's you know in my opinion anyway more beneficial than having this sort of commingle structure is that you can have a complete segregation. One for like you know compliance and regulatory purposes. There's the risk management parts of it. Whereas if one manager blows up unexpectedly for whatever the case may be, you know a huge trade error. There might be something, you know, they, they might have put in a huge order. They might have uh, overrun their margin usage, and it pulls in all of the other accounts. You know, this is something that you could get in a co-mingled solution. Let's say, whereas in a complete segregation of it, and it's all simple managed accounts. Whatever happens in this managed account does not affect all of the other managed accounts at all. And also, you know, in the multi-manager solution, you know, we own the managed accounts, but we don't dictate all of the signals in each account. You know, the, the managers themselves are in charge of their strategies. They run the strategies. You know, we get the yeah. output of this. We don't want to be netting their positions and you know, putting this together and it's, it's going to offset this and so on. You know, every managed account has its own, you know, particular brokers associated with it. Again, for, um, you know, you want this to be as scalable and as robust. So each one has a broker, a backup broker, and a future side on the cash OTC. So, you know, it's, it's a huge infrastructure. It's an extremely difficult thing to do if you were to do it, you know, yourself, let's say. Um, and... The other, the other thing that you get as well is, you know, the timing of the trades would make it extremely difficult to do that netting that you are uh, talking about. Because if you think about the multi-manager solution, you have trend followers who might trade once a day, once every three days, once a week, whatever the case may be. And then you have short-term managers who are probably trading every half hour, every 15 minutes. You know, so it's like, oh, all of a sudden we have to net this, which broker does it go through? Everybody's using different brokers. And that in itself then creates this absolute chaos. You know, which accounts need to be funded? Oh, does the margin go into this account? Does it go into this account? Or is it, is it a free for all, essentially? You know, first come, first serve on the margin. You know, we prefer a structure where it's very margin efficient. Every account knows exactly how much margin they're allowed to use and to stick with the strategy for that particular account yeah that's that's the approach that we use there um that's in terms point. of the um you know the fees and the netting and yeah, the performance the fees yeah so exactly yeah, yeah. that's that's a, that's <clears> another <throat> key point to this is that yes you know in any fund that we're going to build 
you know, we work directly with a manager. You know, in, in my example, like 20 managers there, some of these managers might prefer flat fee solutions, some might prefer a combination of, you know, management fee and performance fee. You know, I got, I got to work with a manager as to see what suits themselves better and what works best for us as well. Everybody has different sharp expectations for their strategies. So you want to build that into your discussions as well. Um, in terms of, you know, you're paying some guys performance fee, you're not paying other guys performance fee and so on. This is a thing you take a long-term view on. And we have a long-term view with our allocations and our managers. You know, we're not in the process of performance chasing or something like this. As we said, there's very high dispersion between CTA returns and low persistence. If you were buying the winners and selling the losers, I think you'd probably be quickly out of business. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, no, for sure. I guess we we're trying to get at to it. Um, yeah, so how does that what work? You get is, yeah, mm-hmm. what you get is this sort of uh, preferential behavior where you know some accounts are going to be in the money, some accounts are not in the money, as you would expect. Every strategy mm-hmm. isn't performed at the same time. If they were, you know, they're all one correlated and you've got a For problem sure. in your portfolio. Um, yeah. What we have is, um, what we call it, is um, the, the profit and loss carry forward, essentially. Um, you know, you have this, uh, oh God, I'm after forgetting the name of it now, is, uh, you know, in terms of the staggered high watermarks. So if one person is, you know, in a 20% drawdown, say, from their high watermark, you essentially have a 20%, if not more, because if you lose 20%, you have to make more than 20% to get back to that point. You know, if your strategy is down 50%, you have to make 100% to get back to that point. So you essentially have a 100% free ride on performance fees from that manager. Mm-hmm. So that is how it actually works to your benefit in the long term. Every manager, you know, how often are you at high watermark? You might do the, you know, the studies and look over time and see that maybe 5%, likely over 5% if you're extremely lucky. So 90% of the time, you're probably not at high watermark. You know, that's kind of the reality of it. If you take a long-term view of this and you have a long-term positive expectation for your manager and it's playing a particular role in your portfolio, you have this to your advantage to so that's so how you, it pays off. So, so just let's say you've got you've got two managers. Just for the case of simplicity in the portfolio, um, one manager really kills it this year. Um, let's say there's an annual performance fee um, crystallization. One manager really kills it this year, um, but the other manager really is in a drawdown that that actually overwhelms the manager that did really well. And so the, the combination portfolio is in drawdown. The manager who did well is expecting to be paid a performance fee. The manager who didn't do well is obviously not expecting a performance fee, but there were no performance fees crystallized at the total portfolio level, right? Mm-hmm. Or does the client pay the individual performance fees of the individual manager? So this is where I... No. This is where I'm just trying to figure out some of the math. Yeah, so, so exactly. When, when you're built a, a multi-manager, um, you know, the, the client pays for the performance of the portfolio itself. You know, you know. Right, so yeah, so not the individual managers. Yeah, you, which you, you, so, you don't pay for the individual managers. That's that's something that we pay for. You know, no, so that makes sense. 
how we do. So, so then if the portfolio is in, if the portfolio itself doesn't accrue any performance fees because the portfolio is, is not above the high watermark in this period, but one of the managers in the portfolio is at a high watermark and expects performance fees, I guess what I'm asking is how do you pay the manager when the fund itself hasn't actually crystallized any performance fees? Yeah, so th this is something that you, that you look at over the long term, you know, and you 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 will get scenarios like you say where you know one manager needs to be paid, one manager is not going to be paid, and different scenarios. But you have working to your advantage in the case of a multi manager is you know the the law of big numbers. Let's say the more managers you put together with positive sharps and everything else, the more you expect your portfolio is going to perform if, if you built it, you know, according to your techniques. Um, what I was looking for earlier was negatively accrued incentive fee. This is a term that I'm sure you guys are very familiar with. And this is precisely what answers your question. Over the long term, it's the same as the chart that we pulled up we pulled up there. You know, this is how it works over the long term. The negatively accrued incentive fee. And so the incentive fee is a, is accrued if the fund, if the if the portfolio <laughs> doesn't hasn't earned any fees in this period, but a manager has accrued fees then when the fund does accrue performance fees, then you'll pay the, you know, pro rata or through some formula, you'll pay fees, performance fees to those managers that have accrued performance fees over prior periods. Well, it's it's not done on a, on a look back cases, you know, and the manager doesn't have to wait for the, uh, the multi-manager to make money before they get paid. The manager will always get paid on their performance. <laughs> you know, we can't have our managers not being paid. The managers will always be paid somewhere crystallized, you know, typically quarterly basis or whatever the case may be. You know, and that's just a function of the multi-manager portfolio. But, you know, like I, I tried to explain to you guys, and if you do, uh, I tell you, you, you should uh, pull up a, a little example for yourself, Adam, and see how it works if you have, you know. I think I'm tracking now. So, so the, the, the total portfolio accrues a liability in the amount of performance fees that, that's paid to the individual managers. And then presumably the fund then will make up for that liability as other managers go on to exceed their high watermarks and, and the fund generates positive P&L ag in aggregate. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And it's, it's a case of, um, you know, in some instances you make, the, the fund is at high watermark, the, you know, the multi-manager is at high watermark and is bringing in incentive fees, everything else. And, you know, when that happens, it means that typically the managers below are performing pretty well, or you have a subset of your managers that are driving their performance. They are also being paid as well. Sure, right. Yeah, they're being paid. And then there's the other instances where you know, the multi-manager is not at a high watermark, not in earning incentive fee. But yep. some of your strategies are in incentive fee territory or in performance fee territory, and some aren't. You know, the guys who are in incentive fee territory are still being paid their fees and the other guys are still not being paid their fee. Over time, all of this equals out and it equals out because of this um, um, negatively accrued incentive fee because you are getting this free ride up. You know, how, okay. like you say, if you look at the stats, how many, uh, you know, the, what is the percentage of time that you're at high water? 
and that is what you have to consider when you're um, when, when you're allocating to managers as well and taking the longer term approach. I mean, the approach that you um, described there would be a disastrous approach if you were chopping a change of managers on a you know monthly basis or on a even a yearly basis, because what, what are you doing? You're essentially creating a new high watermark with every allocation that you do. Yeah, yeah. Every allocation that you put out there, and you're just constantly paying people. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you're taking the longer term approach and you understand that this goes through cycles, you know, the majority of the time, you're going to be in a position where you're getting this free ride up. Just as a function of how managers and trend followers and uh, you know, systematic strategies work. It's, it's a very small percentage of the time that they are actually in high watermark territory. So you guys do consulting, you, you create custom um, portfolios for institutions and, and large investors. I'm curious whether you've noticed a shift in preferences or objectives um, for investors that are coming to you for solutions over the past few years or, um, you know, any, any takeaways for what institutions are looking for and how, how that's changed over time? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that we did is, um, you know, 2014, uh, well, if, if you kind of look back at uh, Abbey Capital and its evolution, you know, when I started, we had just a private fund. So it's only a certain number of investors who can actually enter into a private fund. We decided to diversify our client base while sticking to what we know best, you know, creating multi-manager portfolios. Now the, we now have the, uh, you know, the mutual fund offerings. The one that we launched in 2014, the one that we launched in 2018, you know, same investment philosophy, you know, multi-manager capital efficiencies all in there. And then we also decided to further diversify our investor base by having our custom products. And the custom products is really where we get to answer some of those questions, Adam, where, you know, um, particular investors might want very particular things. You know, if I look in recent times, um, you know, all of the news and what's on people's investors, what's on investors' minds, it's constantly changing. I'm sure it's something that you guys have come against as well. If you go back a couple of years ago, it seems that um, you know quant macro was a really big thing, and everybody was like, "Oh, we need quant macro. We don't just need fundamental data inputs. We need you know quant plus fundamental. It was this like quantumental? Yeah, it was a big buzzword. Oh, we need this all of a sudden. And this is something we're interested in. And you know, and then that went through its phases, its popularity, so on. And then all of a sudden, you know, machine learning shot to the fore, and I was like. Oh my God, you don't have a machine learning manager. You do have a machine learning manager. We need this. This is the future. Everybody needs machine learning, you know. And it goes through phases like this um, as strategies evolve, technology becomes more to the fore. But what we're seeing is, you know, and what we are trying to do is educate the space on the long term approach to it. And yes, you can have all these different strategies doing all these marvelous things there, but it's a portfolio that you want to look at. Um, you know, and what we're seeing now. Is, is quite different to what we saw actually in the last decade. Um, what we're seeing now is all of this inflation fears is out there. Well, it started at the beginning of the year as inflation fears. I'm not sure it can be labeled that anymore. <laughs> we saw the CPI numbers more. Right. Um, yeah, that's right. But well, I'd like to talk a little bit about that too. Uh, the inflation yeah, exactly. Side. We can yeah. jump into that. And another thing we can jump into is commodities as well, which kind of ties yeah. in with the inflation story. That's right. Uh, 
I can jump into that as well. But, you know, we're seeing more and more investors come to us thinking about, oh, there's inflation out there. What does this actually mean for my portfolio? Commodities. Oh, where can I gain some exposure to commodities? And how can I do this in a, you know, in a, in a very liquid way? You know, is there a liquid alternative out there that will give me access to this? And then, you know, you guys have covered this in, in your recent work, and we can get to this as well in terms of bonds and fixed income. All of a sudden, what is the outlook for bonds in this decade? You know, it, it's no longer going to be what it was in the previous decade, or at least we don't expect it to be. And what will it look like in a rising interest rate environment? Yeah. yeah. So people are then coming to us with, oh, I'm not so sure what I want to do with this big chunk of my portfolio that's allocated to bonds or fixed income. You know, what, what have you got there? Does managed futures sit, the, sit in this as a diversifier? How does this actually work? And this, you know, I think leads us nicely into what we've seen in this current environment, inflation, everything else. Yeah. So I'll actually, in the, in the latter half of my tweet storm, I talked about you know, what I presented is something nobody's going to do or most investors aren't going to do, which is lever up to 19% volatility. So the next phase was, what if we lever it down to, you know, some some trend and some SPY to match the volatility mm-hmm. of the Vanguard balanced fund, right? And so you get kind of a similar thing as what we talked about. Oh, is my screen yellow? That's my, uh, that's my yellow. night guard. It's my night, it's, what's it called? The Flux app that I now need to take off. Um, so the it's similar outcome, right? So you get a better result than just uh, investing in VBank. So this is, this is a, the black line here is a combination of SPY and trend only against the Vanguard fund in blue, right? So similar outcomes, much smoother results. What's interesting here is that, um, you know, like you said, Glenn, you have we have a period where people worried about what's going to happen to my bonds, right? There's two things that I that I think is common and everybody's talking about, which is inflation, and then what's going to happen to my bonds. Now, this mm-hmm. is not investment advice, but what I think you you know one thing that that um, chart showed is that if you replace your bonds with something like macro or CTA, you get a similar outcome at a time when really inflation hasn't been a big deal. What happens when, let's say, we look forward to the next decade and we're worried about inflation? What does that? What does worrying about inflation really mean? Well, inflation tends to be, a, an inflation decade tends to be a quite a volatile thing for just passive commodities. So the yellow line in this chart is simply a Deutsche Bank commodity index. Right? So it's not a straight line in the 2000s to, to 2011. You know, commodities just didn't go up; they went down 30 percent up a bunch, down 60%, up a bunch. And it turns out that when you look at macro systematic or trend, they tend to do a good job at managing both the upside of commodities and the downside, because it's obvious, right? Like over around half of the exposures that they can invest in are in the commodity space. So if you're not doing well when commodities, then you're SOL, right? And so it's interesting that when we look to the future and we see bonds doing poorly, what can you replace it with? We see inflation, what can you replace it with? Is it a passive commodity index or is it an active managed commodity yeah. index mm-hmm. or just a simple multi like diversified uh, mm-hmm. uh, managed futures or a global macro 
that can navigate the future better for you, right? As a as a possible replacement for bonds or an adjunct to bonds or an overlay if you can do it. In the 70s, it was the same. The chart just shows uh, in yellow again the um, uh, commodity markets. And then, uh, sorry, that was a loud move. Mike, you might want to turn off your mic for a second or look at my Slack with regard to your mic. Uh, I did already. I was unmuting myself. Just wondering if, because the 70s is an interesting inflationary period, but maybe not quite as analogous of a period as to maybe the 40s or something like that, where there was that Mm -hmm. sort of those transitory impulses that came, leveled up, and then flattened sort of. So, Well, that was a three-year period of a drawdown for the commodity space in the 70s, right? So it's a long, this is when people gave up on this, like, okay, let's, let's hedge inflation with a passive commodity index. I think for many reasons, we really obviously all like this uh, CTA, this managed future space, but there's something very compelling to me in the next decade of inflation volatility, which is not just inflation means making money in commodities every year. It's making a lot of money at times, losing a lot of money. How do you manage that, that with a bond portfolio that's yielding 1%? and yeah. a um, an inflationary uh, regime. So I kind of, you know, that was the end of the tweet storm here is like, it, it seems to be a good tool here and nobody's yeah, really looking no. at it. And yet don't look at the last 10 years as like the single digit thing. How about you, like, let's think about what may happen in the next 10 years. And if you're investing in something whose universe is commodities for the most part, yeah. what do you think is gonna happen to the worst manager in that space? They're so likely to do significantly better than a bond portfolio or, a, you know, even a 60-40. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, yeah, it's really good points that you bring up there. And a lot, a lot of the queries that we're getting are based on these, um, you know, these kind of fears in many ways as what the next decade, well, the current decade that we're in now, I guess, could, could hold after we've lived through the peer, previous decade and we know what, if, what it's had. Um, you know, I'll break it down into two, like firstly, the, the commodity side of things, and then we can look at the, you know, the inflation side of things and everything more on the financial side uh, and the role of trend following and managed futures in these sort of environments. And, you know, like, like you guys, I, I'm a data-driven person, so I like to, to look at the data and just see what the data is showing us. You know, if I just look at it, if I start with commodities, because I know it's something that a lot of folks are interested in, and many people mightn't actually be super aware of what all of these futures markets are actually doing, except when they go to the shops and fill up for, for gas. They're like, oh, my God, I don't remember it being so expensive. So, you know, what we've really seen, <clears throat> um, yeah, we've, t- we've touched across this before, um, you know, in terms of the SOCGEN index, the trend index, and the CTA index itself. have been positive year to date. 2020 and 2019. So that would suggest that it's, you know, a better environment for, for managed futures as evidenced by them. And another actually uh, nice piece of analysis that you guys will be interested in is, uh, you know, if you look at the Barclay CTA index, I mean, that one goes back quite a long time. Um, and if you look at its rolling three-year share, you'd actually see that it hit record highs in October 2021. So, you know, something there would say that, well, maybe it is the commodity environment that is that is helping these, or the strategies have profited from this. So, us internally, what we do is we run, you know, um, trend indicators. You know, our own sort of trend indicator, which basically looks at 
think it's 55 of the, the major markets across all the different asset classes, you know, commodities, um, bonds, interest rates, equities, and so on. And we look at the number of markets, you know, either in a trend, consolidation mode, or basically not trending. You know, based on our own research and our own, um, you know, methodologies, we saw that this measure was kind of at a, at a 10 year high in March of this year. And then if we break it down year by year, we see that 2021 as a standalone year was above sort of 30 year average of percentage of markets trending. And then if we look at this simply in the commodity space, look at the percentage of markets trending by year in commodities, you know, we've seen that we're at levels not seen in over a decade. Yeah. Wow. So it's kind of a case of what is what is driving this? You know, are, I, are those did you find those are persistent? Were they were they, you know, anomalous where did, did this one year happen and you're gonna get reversion, or did you did does the research show that oh in fact they cluster? Yes, yeah, so, so what do, you know what, what the indicator just says is ju it just kind of detects, oh, you know, was this a year for trends and kind of counts the number and averages across the markets and so on. We have different measures then to look at the efficiencies of these trends. You know, there's things like directional efficiency that we use, which is kind of a, a modified version of let's say Kaufman efficiency, which looks at you know how efficient this trend was for a particular strategy. Um, but what we've really noticed, guys, is um, the rotation of uh, trends within the commodity space, which which is something that we hadn't seen if we look back over our internal analysis, you know, in, in many years. And it's really been fueled by, you know, numerous uncorrelated, let's say, idiosyncratic in many ways, fundamentally different drivers. You know, I, I kind of break these down into three components. You know, we have the growth-sensitive type commodities, these have increased in price on the inflation expectations, economic reopening, prospect of increased fiscal spending. And then we have, you know, sort of normal cycle of commodities, which is the demand and supply cycle. This year, we've also seen all the supply chain disruptions in there. And then the third point is the weather. You know, the weather always plays havoc with commodity prices and is a big driver there. And if I just pick out a few of them, because I've been looking at them this today as well, just to give examples to people out there, because, you know, I think crude oil is the one, and energy in particular is the one everybody's familiar with, um, mm -hmm. especially when we go and fill up our, our car, cars and get gas. Like Q1 2020, during you know, the, the height of the COVID pandemic, let's say, um, you know, we had this significant downtrend from about $60 to, everybody remembers the big shock story of negative crude oil prices, et cetera. You know, that's, that was in, in Q1 2020. So we had this nice, smooth sort of, you know, sell-off there for opportunities on the short side for trend folders. And then from Q2 2020 all the way up to now, you know, we've seen it go from those low levels of, let's say, sub $20 all the way back up to $80. So that has been a nice trending scenario which systematic strategies, trend followers in particular, are going to profit from. We've seen the same thing in that gas, you know, particularly in Europe and Asia. So we've seen the low supplies in Europe. We've seen you know, hurricanes in the US, uh, you know, hamper the, the supplies and so on. So that gas has skyrocketed and gone, hit some record highs during the year. Similarly, then in electricity, if you look at electricity prices in Europe, we've gone through the roof there as well. Then we look across other sort of, you know, growth-sensitive commodities, 
copper, for example, record high earlier this year as well. And it's not just a standalone commodity market either. It's what impact does this have on other parts of um, of the economy, for example. You know, the energy prices, we've seen the impact they've had on shipping costs. We've seen what that has, uh, the impact that has had in terms of the supply chains. You know, it's now much more expensive to move goods from one place to another. Um, and then the energy costs, we've seen how that has impacted manufacturing, for example. You know, and the low supplies of many metals, um, aluminium and zinc, for example. Um, you know, they've really increased in prices on the back of, you know, it's now more expensive to manufacture these things. In turn, that leads to trends in things like car prices are going up. This is all, all over the news all the time. You know, I can keep going on and on in the commodity sector. You know, we look at corn and soybeans. Yeah, well, let's get to coffee, the importance. Yeah, stuff. exactly. <laughs> coffee is a multi-year high now, as I look okay. at the chart there. You know, okay. again, weather, it's a completely fundamentally different factor or different driver to what is driving equities and, you know, fixed income on bonds. And I'm sure you guys remember lumber as well at the beginning of the year. Oh, yeah. If, if you're trying to build a new deck or trying to do any work in your garden, you know the price of lumber. And, you know, that's a reached all-time highs this year. It's knock-on impacts in terms of construction, housing starts, etc. So, you know, how, how do systematic strategies fit into this? Well, you know, what we've really seen is that higher inflation, stronger demand as the economy reopens, and the supply disruptions have kind of created this positive environment for commodities. You know, commodity prices translate into inflation. Trading in commodities is how trend-following managers and managed futures can participate in any trends in inflation. Um, and it's something that we looked at earlier this year. You know, we, we have created a, a written a small uh, paper on this as well, um, on you know, how a bi-directional strategy like managed futures could actually help a portfolio in this environment. Um, you know, for people who are interested, a lot of these papers, you can actually find them on, on our website. Um, and that's before we even get into the inflation thing. So I'd like to just touch on that side, Rodrigo, because I know it's something you guys have done a great job of in terms of your uh, return stacking paper. Um, you know, it's, it's something that we actually had written a little white paper ourselves at the beginning of the year on maybe now is a good time to reassess your 60-40 portfolio yeah. or your traditional portfolio. Yeah. And if you look back, the 60-40 has kind of been touted as this simple yet very effective allocation plan for many investors out there. If we look at it in the past decade, it's been extremely effective. Yeah. The stats are pretty outstanding. 99th percentile sharp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It annualized at you know a crazy rate year on year, um, and also with half the volatility of equities. Yeah. But like, why? Why did this happen? What were the driving forces there, and why you know, should we not take these for granted? You know, so in, in our paper, we kind of put these three points, and it's fairly similar to you know um, some of your previous speakers on the shows have spoken about this, and you know it's kind of just stating the obvious in terms of what the data is saying. Well, the first point is the valuations. You know, if you look at the start of the previous decade in 2010, well, the starting valuations for equities and bonds were not high by historical standards, let's say. And then the second point is the market conditions. What are the market conditions at that point? You know, in the last decade, you had low inflation, steady economic growth, quantitative easing from 
pretty much all the, the global central banks. And then the last point, which really drove the, uh, the good performance in, in the 60-40 portfolio was the negative correlation between bonds and equities. You know, bonds, to some extent, acting as a diversifier when, during these equity sell-offs, but really importantly, driving down the volatility of the 60-40 portfolio. But now we fast forward to today, and we look at those three points where we are today, and it's, well, the first one, let's look at the valuations. Well, we know equities are expensive, they're close, they're pretty much at all-time high highs. You know, we look at the bond side of the portfolio, then yields are close to all-time lows nearly. You know, it's a very different starting point to 2010. And we know, if we specifically look at the bond side of the portfolio, that, you know, the starting level of yields historically has been an excellent predictor of the future return that you're going to get there. So regardless of what your opinion or outlook is on equities, you, know, you still have this 40% in your traditional 60-40 portfolio that's going to you know, possibly produce much lower returns. You know, I, I was actually just looking at earlier. Certainly, certainly on a real basis. You yeah, exactly. Them to be negative. <laughs> you, you read my mind perfectly there. I was thinking of the... Yeah, you know, I, I did up a chart earlier of the you know U.S. real yield. If we look at it, you know the difference between the ten-year Treasury yield and U.S. CPI, you know it's it's somewhere around minus four percent now. It's not even lower, you know. And as you mentioned, Rodrigo, these are levels not seen since the seventies. We wouldn't expect them to change. There's no yeah. there's no room for um, monetary and fiscal policy to allow for an increase in debt payments that would allow for a normalization in those rates. That's kind of why I think it's kind of that 40s scenario more than the 70s scenario in that, you know, you've got rates pinned in order to pay for something. In the one case, it was World War II. In this case, it's COVID, the battle of COVID and, and all of the normalization, renormalization of the global economy. So you you have an active player who's also the referee of the game in, in central banks and, and man yeah. manipulating the bond markets. And they're going to have a sort of a, a mandate to have a real negative yield over the next number of years. Yeah, I would think, I, I don't, I don't know how else you cope with it. And that's without even, uh, you know, considering the correlation, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I like to focus on the correlation part of it as well, because often I feel it's something that's, that's quite overlooked and we take, you know, the correlation profile in the last decade of equities and bonds as a sort of guarantee for what's going to happen this time. But, you know, if inflation continues um, and if the correlation breakdown, you know, or breakdown breaks down between, you know, equities and bonds, well, then you can really be in trouble in terms of your 60-40 portfolio. So I was actually looking at a chart earlier there where we look at the... Um, 260-day rolling correlation between the S&P and the U.S. Treasury long bond future. And you just look at that over time, and you see that it's been, you know, pretty much negative for the majority of the last decade. You see this year with inflation on the rise and, uh, you know, and all these trends in commodities, everything else, what do we see, though? We see that that cor correlation has now started to turn very slightly positive. So this is the first time we've seen that since 2007. So that there 
I think is you know, something that someone in a 60-40 portfolio should be you know, aware of. And it's like, well, what can we do then? You know, well, diversification, diversification, diversification. And I think it's at this point I hand it off to you guys and say, hit us up with your return stacking paper. What can you guys do? We have built these <laughs> capital efficient portfolios. You guys have showed investors how to use them. Yeah. You know, and, and this it's, is the education. It is, of- it is absolutely crazy. And when you've your whole career or your whole investment life as an individual investor has been negatively correlated bonds and equities. Since the night since 1981, I, I mean, it's hard to find a practitioner that was around in the 70s when bonds and equities, mm-hmm. in real terms, annualized zero for a decade, and their correlation was like 0.68 positive. Yeah, right. Like, when was the last time we've gotten used to this idea of negative, low, negatively correlated assets that both make money? Mm-hmm. Um, if inflation comes, that's going to change. Yeah, and you need to have those diversifiers to to help you mitigate all of that. And, uh, and it's not. And it's I think tough. I think you stated it well. And I, we've been at this for an hour and a half, so we should probably wrap. But I think you stated it well at the beginning. And Adam, this is I think you're the progenitor of the thought is that it's inflation volatility that we're going to be facing. Yeah, and again, it's going to spike, and maybe it'll attenuate. Uh, but you're going to have the spike is not going to attenuate and fall off. It's it's going to spike to a new level where it sort of holds, I think, potentially, and you know degrades the long term uh, opportunity in those safer vehicles, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, we, we've kept you, Glenn, for you know over ninety minutes, yeah. and, and we no appreciate all the time that you shared with us. It's really, really had a good time here, guys. Ah, what I, I just finish off on, you know, if I could, yeah, a word please. of uh, you know, kind of cautious more than anything else and you know in terms of being a portfolio builder you guys being portfolio builders as well being in the education space as well in terms of how to use these things you know let's let's share knowledge and so on but i'd really ask people out there to do if you're you know running you're managing your own money you're managing money for clients or you know big institution whatever it is is you know understand the return drivers of each of the assets in your portfolio you know break them down into their components, understand exactly how to perform in different environments. Go back to Q1 2020, see how the correlations played out. You know, was your diversifier really a diversifier? And, you know, how did it perform? Then look at how these might actually perform in a rising interest rate scenario. You know, how they might actually perform in a, um, you know, an environment of elevated interest rates. You know, go back to the 70s, stress test your portfolios. Your preparation is key for all of this. You know, if you prepare, you know what to expect in many ways. Yeah. Preparation so guys, thanks very much. I've had a blast. No, so Glenn, thanks, Glenn, where can everybody find you and where can they find some of the white papers that Abbey Capital offers as a means of education so they can bring themselves up the, the learning curve? Yeah. So, um, you know, the best place to contact us is really via the website, uh, abbeycapital.com. There you'll find, you know, links to uh, all of our, our white papers and what we generally publish. I think for some of them, you might have to provide your email address, but that's just for compliance purposes. And for me, you know, you can hit me up via the website as well, or just reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me a message there, you know, happy to uh, happy to have a conversation. We got to get you on Twitter, Glenn. 
Yeah. We're carrying yes. on those conversations you real got, time. You got to get into the FinTweet universe. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh, guys, congrats as well on uh, on that paper. I really enjoyed reading it as well and the messages behind it uh, very powerful. You could say congrats to Corey as well. I, I seen him on the show a couple of times there as well and it was always good fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was very. It's been very useful to communicate this, the same old message in a different way. Just exactly, it's the right but time, I, I as think said. it's one that uh, you know is easily relatable, and uh, you know it's, it's it's something people can really grasp and get onto. It's like, oh, I see how I can have the same portfolio, but a much more capital efficient manage, manage yeah. like way. So. Awesome. Well, Glenn, thank you so much. And everybody still listening, don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, you know, share it with, share the love with everybody else to make sure that they're getting the same education you are. And we'll hopefully see you again. I don't know, Mike, you said that we're not coming back for the rest of the month, but is that true? No, are we done no, for the year? I, I said we are, this is the second to last. We've got one more next week. Oh, it's our Two penultimate session of the Two year. Two more shows. <laughs> not the end of the show. I, I must have misspoken. All good. All right. My bad. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. All, well, all right. Thanks, guys. Uh, Have a thanks great weekend. Again. Good luck, guys. All the best. Thanks. Happy holidays. Love that Christmas tree in the background, yep. too. Merry <laughs> Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.